This episode is brought to you by our wonderful patrons. If you enjoy the Coffee and Cocktails podcast, feel free to support our show by becoming a patron for as little as one pound per month. By subscribing to our show, you get early access to ad-free and bonus episodes, patron-only content, workshops, panels, and much more. All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast and subscribe today. Thanks for listening and on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Coffee and Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. We have the pleasure today of listening to Dr. Banu Karaja, who will be talking to us today about portions of her book, The National Frame, Art and State Violence in Turkey and Germany. But before we begin, if you haven't listened to Banu's talk on Nazism art and questioning free speech, then I highly suggest you listen to episode 28 before we begin. Otherwise, rather than ask what drink you were having for the show, Banu, would you like to start? Yes, thank you so much for having me uh, once more. So um, what I wanted to do today in our conversation is to talk about a particular part of my book. The book, uh, The National Frame, is uh, based on long-term ethnographic research in the art world of Istanbul and Berlin. And it's a comparative study that looks at the local formations of the global art world by focusing on a darker, much neglected side uh, of art. Um, and that is the fact that the history of art and its institutions has long been intertwined with state violence and dispossession, and not just in Germany and Turkey. And what I wanted to do today is actually pick a very small part of the book that talks about different actors in the art world, um, specifically uh, gallerists, collectors, and corporate sponsors. And why, while this might sound like a bizarre choice um, at first sight, I really wanted to spotlight that when we talk about the art world, there's a lot of hidden figures or actors that actually make the wheels turn and that we don't usually think about when we look at artworks or when we go to a museum or when we go to a gallery because, and rightly so, we are focused on the art itself. Um, I do think it's important to understand the art world and how art is governed because it shows us or it tells us something about what we get to see. We often think about, you know, that the art exhibited or selected for a museum or for a gallery or for a specific event presents the most adequate, the most eloquent or the best quote-unquote art that is out there. But really it's through these different actors playing together that uh, it, that it's that inter the interaction between them that determines what we get to see very often. And I think this kind of understanding can A, help us demystify the art world, which I think there's still a lot of mystique around it. Um, but it can also help us sort of engage with the transformative potential of art that I think most people have experienced at some point in their life. Um, and experience it in a way to really unlock that that um, transformative potential that art can have. And we're very clear about who mediates what we get to see and where we get to see it and how we get to see an artwork, right? It's never, it's very rare that we, un, in an unmediated fashion, meet with an artwork. 
Sorry to interrupt. Do you hear the call to prayer or is it okay? I actually really like the call to prayer. I think it sounds really nice. I mean, for those that are listening, um, so Banu is actually calling from Istanbul. So um, for me, it's actually really beautiful. So it's quite, you know, you are talking about Istanbul. So it's it's actually quite, it's quite, uh, the good timing was really good. So yeah, you're doing good. I'm very glad. So I'll just carry on through it. And thanks for bearing with me. So um, maybe just by way of a small sort of more theoretical definition, what the art world is, you know, when we say art world. Um, Philosopher Arto Danto had sort of defined the art world in the 1960s as an interplay between institutional spaces, practices, and authoritative theories that makes the art world for him. And I would say that it might be helpful to think about the art world as an assemblage of people who have very different interests and very different understandings of art. And these different interests and sort of uh, motivations why they tend to art are in constant need of reconciling. And so I see the art world a little bit as a terrain of struggle. Let's think about the art gallery as a first site, so to speak, and the gallerist as a first figure. And I say this, I always, of course, it goes without saying that the artists and their production is, of course, at the center. But again, today we'll talk a little bit about the people who mediate what we see when we go out to see art. It's quite interesting, perhaps, that in Europe, uh, people like we use the term gallerist, whereas in the US, the term art dealer is used more commonly. And I've always found that a quite striking difference because uh, it's always seemed to me that the economic aspect of buying and selling art seems to be less of a problem in the US than it sometimes seems to be within the European context. In Europe, Art dealers are usually called people who work on what is called the secondary market. That is, they buy or sell art that has already been in circulation for some time, whereas the gallerist usually directly gets the art from the artist. So it's the first time that the art changes hands. And then everything that happens afterwards is called the secondary market. Why that's important, we can talk a little bit about that if there's interest in that. But this just as a small distinction. So notably what I found is that galleries, although they are commercial businesses, tend to not like to speak about the business aspect of their work. And I think that's quite notable and perhaps distinguishes the art market from other kinds of markets where the very economic transaction that is at its heart is really unquestioned and not really a a sort of conceptual problem. For the most part, they think about or they talk, what I found in my interviews is that they talk about the artists that they represent as friends rather than clients and that they very often frame their activities, again, not as an economic activity or a business, but a service to the artist, to the collector, and also to the wider public. Uh, Because, as gallerists so often say, in principle, galleries are open to everyone, to passerbys. Now, some of you 
depending on, you know, what your sort of comfort level is with art. For some of you, uh, you might have made the experience that when you pass a gallery, you sort of see something that could interest you and you want to go inside. You also have that squeezy feeling of a certain kind of threshold that somehow you might lack what is often called the cultural capital that is needed to access such a space. Um, when I taught about art um, uh, at, at different universities, I found that students very often describe this sort of unease or discomfort, um, the fear of doing something wrong. Very similar to when you enter a museum and have that moment where you're like, where am I supposed to begin circling this exhibition, right? So that might be familiar to some. So this notion of being open to the public and serving the public does, has a little bit of a caveat to it that comes very much with what we attach, what kind of value we attach to art, that we think of it as something um, that people need to be educated in to be able to appreciate. Well, or I should rather say that's one idea of art. Another idea of art is actually that it's accessible to everyone because it's a human activity and thus is deeply universal and in principle accessible to everyone. So having said that, um, it might be worth looking a little bit closer at that, what happens at a gallery. So without the work of the artist, the gallery cannot exist. Galleries deal directly with economic transactions, public relations, secure shows, and help represent artists and the dealings with public and private in, in their dealings with public and private institutions. Artists both aspire to have a gallery, to have gallery representation, while also dreading, very often I found dreading the dependency it creates. So the going gallery commission teaches around 50%. So if there's a sale in a gallery, 50% would go to the gallerist. Um, but sometimes, um, so it's the gallerist who usually determines the price. I'm talking about artists who are at the mid-level. Mid Let's say if you are a Jeff Koons, you're very likely to, to uh, be able to uh, determine the pricing yourself. But if you're a mid-level, level, I would say, artist, sort of someone who's, or someone who's trying to embark on a career and has the lack of being represented by a gallery, um, and you want to make a living of it, that's what you have to sort of imagine. Um, as I said, galleries still rarely address the business character of their activities, instead framing it of service to, the art, to artists and buyer, or in terms of friendship, advocacy on, on the behalf of the artist or the collector. But, and I think that's really important to remember, they're also gatekeepers in a very specific kind of way because they negotiate loans with museums. Now, why do museums need loans from galleries, for instance? Very often a museum, for instance, when they choose a, a thematic exhibition or want to show a retrospective of an artist, they try to communicate with other institutions and sometimes private collectors or with if it's a living artist who still has a gallery um, with their gallerist. So they negotiate the conditions under which they can show a certain artwork. But there's another story to this, which is that for the past, really since the 1980s, 
throughout the European context, we can say that there's, that there's been a rollback in, in funding for the arts in general, including for museums to buy art. So they don't necessarily own everything that they show. Um, at first sight, this seems like a good solution. They can loan from, from galleries, from, from the artists themselves, or from private collectors. But when, if, when, we have a, when we take a closer look at these kind of dealings, what we notice is that galleries and collectors have become increasingly powerful in determining what is being shown at museums. Because um, the concepts, while there's always curators who suggest concepts and exhibitions, the board uh, of, a, of a given, any given museum needs to sign up, uh, for, you know, uh, needs to sort of takes a vote and decides if the project can go through or not. Now, board members are most of the time themselves collectors and have a vested interest that the museum shows artists that they themselves collect so that their own uh, collections gain in value and legitimacy, so to speak, because they're being written up and art historically discussed. And galleries also play a sort of in more and more an enormous role in negotiating the conditions of these kind of loans and so on. Um, perhaps we can move to the figure of the collector again. These are very important people for artists themselves because collectors enable artists to make a living, ideally, of their, of their artistic work. Um, but at the same time, although collecting is very often seen as a sort of philanthropic activity in a way, uh, it is also, and, and although it um, allows for artists to make a living, um, it is also conceptually a difficult um, activity to sort of gauge or assess because what collectors do is actually collect something that we think of as a greater or public good in private hands. So what does it mean if collectors can possess significant works of art? Now, the kinds of dilemmas that come from here have been discussed, for instance, through the example of, let's say, there's a collector who has a unique Rembrandt that really should be the heritage of all humankind, because we think of art as universal in that way. But because the super rich person could buy this Rembrandt, decides to play darts with it. So these kind of problematics show us that something like art that we see as very often, or there's a lot of theories throughout the centuries, a lot of philosophy has centered around art being for all of us, us always in quotation marks, of course. But what happens when people can accumulate it privately and then do with it what they want, right? There's a many collectors who have very significant works of art who they do not share with the public. What does that mean, right? Is that a loss for the public? Um, 
On the other hand, when collectors, what I found in my interviews, when collectors themselves talk about their activity of collecting, they very often speak of passion. They speak of love. They do not speak of economic transaction most of the time. Devotion is sort of um, a keyword that comes up repeatedly because they invest significant time in the activity of collecting. It's always expressed in very personal terms that one wants to leave a mark on the world through their quote-unquote collection, through their quote-unquote artworks. Um, but there's also, and there's been different studies about that, sort of more psychological motives of the hunter hunting instinct that is sort of ingrained in the activity of collecting. You know, where collectors say, I, I hunted that, that one painting down for decades and then I found the guy and he wasn't, you know, who owned it before and he needed cash. And so I finally, you know, it's sort of a kind of triumphalist um, uh, story of taking possession of something. What goes amiss a little bit in these descriptions, and I do not want to in any shape or form question the validity of these kind of um, expressions of deep attachment and love that people have to artworks they collect, is that collectors of a certain, after a certain, let's say, size of collecting or a certain kind of investment, quote unquote, or certain kinds of sums of money, do not really decide on this by themselves, but very often work with advisors who really shape what a, what a collection looks like. So this very deeply personal activity then becomes actually something quite professional that is shaped by art professionals in a particular kind of manner. Um, and yet these motives of responsibility, not just to oneself or the artist, but to the public, you know, this idea that collectors are really the bedrocks of the art world, that the dusty museums uh, systems of today's nation states, the public museums are not really up to the task, this idea that they're not really up to the task, but it's really private collectors who keep the whole thing going and that they're the ones that are, who are, um, Supporting innovation, for instance, these are discourses that we find a lot, these kind of, um, and I would bet you open any kind of newspaper with an art section these days that has anything about a collector at one point or another, this very personal activity all of a sudden becomes framed as, well, you know, in country X, uh, Germany's dusty museum system uh, should be long overhauled if it wasn't for the innovation of private collectors. The art world in Germany, in this case, would fall apart, or in Turkey, the idea of a disinterested state in contemporary art. It's really the private collectors who keep this entire world going. And this idea that through their collecting activity, they actually spark innovation is to some extent, of course, true because they make artists' livelihood possible. But also interesting to note that collectors sometimes liken their own process of collecting to the creative work of the artists. And I think that's always quite interesting to me. Um, so I hope these are some kind of 
little insights that help demystify what collecting is actually about. And um, that, you know, not to say that people do not invest a lot of time, do not uh, constantly educate themselves. But again, we think of um, collectors as these very cosmopolitan actors, people, which they are in terms of they travel a lot, they go to art fairs, they see a lot of exhibitions. But at the same time, when they justify the possession, the possession of artworks, they very often do that within national histories and within the landscape of national institutions. The final group that I just want to ever so briefly talk about are corporate sponsors because they have, uh, due to the aforementioned rollback and public funding that we've seen at the very least since the 1980s, I think this is true for the UK and for most of Europe as well. Very often that's sort of clocked under the keyword of neoliberalism, this idea of a certain stage of capitalism where privatization is is uh, presented as the solution to cyclical crisis within capitalism. Um, so corporate sponsors have become increasingly important. I know that in the US this has been the case for a long time, but for I think for the European context, this is still a rather fresh journey in some ways. Um, and I think there's in very interestingly it's probably the most criticized activity within the art world. The idea of art washing, sort of that corporations invest, quote unquote, into art to uh, ameliorate their image um, has been uh, an, an, a critique that has been leveraged regularly. What I found really interesting um, when I talked to uh, CEOs or people who in corporations who are in charge of corporate sponsorship is that they're keenly aware on the one hand side of this criticism, but on the other hand, are really insistent on um, showing that they do not instrumentalize art, one. And secondly, that they are actually not corporations, but civil society actors, so that they take on a, a part of social, cultural responsibility that according to the official parlance, the state has abandoned for whatever reason. And so they often think or speak of themselves officially, publicly, as an alternative to the state, as a, as a sort of funding mechanism that is free of politics because, of course, the state always has political interest in this reasoning, whereas corporations are portrayed to be politically neutral. Um, I mean, there's much to unpack here, um, but the forcefulness with, with which they repeat this kind of story to themselves is quite notable in themselves. So, it's not that just that, again, they think they are keeping the art world today alive, but they're also, it's their funding that really allows for true, quote unquote, artistic freedom and artistic uh, innovation in that way. Um, and any kind of economic gains they might have from their sponsoring activities, let's say, uh, 
a sort of public prestige that they might gain or just by the fact that their name is constantly uttered in conjuncture with different art events uh, is always any kind of economic gain that might be reaped from that is constantly uh, portrayed as a as a mere byproduct rather than the actual um, focus of these kind of activities. And um, yeah, perhaps I should also say that this antagonism that they very often portray themselves to be, this antagonism that they put up between corporate sponsorship and the state is of course also highly questionable because state and economy go hand in hand and rarely diverge from each other. They're not really alternatives towards each other. So, and here again, when, when sort of pressed uh, about their practices of arts funding, they also use this idea of art as a greater good, as a public good, to, um, to justify um, the kind of arts policies that they pursue. And again, notably, even if these are international corporations or transnational corporations, they do do this in every instance by very much uh, highlighting local and national particularities that they respond to the need of the people and who these people are is always refracted through this national frame. So, you know, in the case of Turkey, it's for the Turkish people, for the people of Turkey, whereas in Germany, it's for the German public. And so these kind of mechanisms and the ways in which people talk about their activities in the art world, although it's such a global phenomenon and so connected, always comes back to the national frame again. Thank you for that. That was really, really interesting. Um, so I took some notes um, because sure. there were a lot of things that came to mind while you were talking. And mm -hmm. I, I suppose the biggest thing for me, the biggest takeaway is that the art world is very much a business and that there seems to be this, how do I put this, this hesitancy from the European side to admit that there is a capitalist element to the art world. And it's very much prevalent in terms of the economic games. You talked about the finances, the selling between you know, the gallerists and the collectors and then their work with the museums. And while from the U.S. perspective, they're very open to it by referring to art gallerists as art dealers, saying what it is, that there's this, um, I wouldn't say trepidation, but again, hesitancy to, to be so forthright with that terminology because of these supposed uh, negative connotations that may come with being labeled as capitalist per se. Would you say that that's, that's accurate? Yeah, I think it's both accurate, but we have to always, a, a little disclaimer. I think, you know, I would say that in general, just with everything related to capitalism, I think there's less trepidations in the US. I mean, after all, it's a, it's a country where there's a ruling of Citizens United, which is that money is speech, you know, mm. or that corporations money are pays, people. Money pays, right? Exactly. So there's these, these kind of court decisions that I think we have a harder time imagining within the European context, which doesn't mean that capitalism works quite the same way. Right. But I think there's a, there's a more, definitely more comfortable 
comfort in talking about um, capitalist gains um, as something that's po uh, not just positive, but also accessible to everybody, right? The American dream very much is centered in that kind of narrative, whereas you don't have that same comfort. Uh, within the European context. There are also, of course, instances in the US where the idea of art as an unfettered commodity, as solely a commodity, uh, also can produce discomfort. It's not that everyone's super comfortable with it. But I think when it comes to sponsorship, uh, for a very long time, um, it's never been discussed in the way that or has it didn't for a long time elicit the kind of protest that it has elicited here. Although historically we could talk about examples, but sure. as a general trend, you're absolutely right. Yeah, sure. So when I was going through your book, there were some things that um, resonated with me quite a bit. So um, I'm, I'm a huge art lover and mm -hmm. I actually taught art history in Florence many years ago. And so I've always had this um, deep passion for um, not so much contemporary art. I'd be the first to say I really love the Renaissance era as, as mm -hmm. one that I really focus on. But I um, I appreciate art for art's sake. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that really struck me when you were talking um, is this uh, role of, of the gallerist and them being the gatekeeper between yeah. the potential buyer and then the seller, which would be uh, the artist. And I can remember some years ago, uh, there was an art gallery in Oxford and it, it, was, it was quite small and there was a painting there that I absolutely loved. And it was, you know, one of those paintings that just speaks to you. And I felt like I was looking at myself in the painting and I can't say that with anything. And it was a, a local artist, um, beautifully done. I wish I could have remembered the name, but again, I felt like I was looking at myself in the painting. And... You know, I, admittedly, I was a student, um, but I asked the gallerist the price of the painting and if the person did um, copies. And I immediately got this sensation that I, A, wasn't welcome. And, uh, you know, B, if you were worth anything, you wouldn't ask those sort of questions. And all I was doing was asking a question. But having read through your book, um, it explained a lot of the psyche, shall we say, exactly. of the gallerist, um, admittedly quite snobby, but that they're approaching at, they're automatically, when the person's coming through the door, they're making assessments of whether or not they think they have a customer that they can make the sale towards. <laughs> um, but the other side of it from the person coming in, it gets back to your point you said before, where people feel intimidated. And it gets back to this idea of, you know, the whole point is to get people through the doors, but it seems like the gallerists don't understand that as gatekeepers, they're only letting in one or two that wear a, wear a Rolex watch. And yet, you know, if art is for the public, how is being a gatekeeper helping the art world? And mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm posing that to you. I, I, I'd be genuinely curious to know your thoughts. Yeah. I think, first of all, thank you for these astute observations. And I think in, in this anecdote, you encapsulated a lot of these um, 
really fundamental questions that we have when we say art, actually behind it is a whole history about thinking what art is, right? And who can appreciate it, who it's for. And in our very definition of art, and I say our again, I know that there's different, of course, intellectual histories. But when we think about, when we say art in the context that you and I are in at the moment, we always summon up an entire history of thinking about aesthetic expressions that we then merge, you know, what you said, you're interested in art for art's sake or the sensation you mentioned when seeing that particular piece, this kind of, as if you're being, ref as something is being reflected back to you that is very uniquely speaking to you. These are, you know, art theory has talked about this the transcendental feelings that art evokes, you know, that we see ourselves in it, our humanity perhaps, something very individual, but yet connecting us to others. So in your anecdote, you actually open up the entire philosophy of art in a way, Anne. Mm. But what we do in these encounters is, of course, we truncate it, we vernacularize it, we talk about it in a shorthand fashion, you know, almost. So what does the gallerist do? If you were to ask the gallerist, this gallerist I'm sure would also say, you know, of course we serve the public and we're open to passerbys. But this kind of seizing, sizing you up is exactly about that. It is a place of business. It's not a mm. place of service, of service to the public. It's not a public space. It is a private business. And so this kind, and that in some ways, not, not in all parts of the art world, but there's still this kind of rarefied taste, the idea of rarefied taste, that it's not for everybody. Mm. Just as an example, uh, in my interviews, and I, I will not name, but no, ga galleries sometimes distinguish between what they call the serious buyer and the one the decorative buyer. Yes, I remember you talking about this. Yeah. Yes. So if the idea of someone who really uh, engages the history of art and, you know, engages the stories of the artists and follows it and sort of studies and invests time and money. And then those who are want to, you know, have a contrast piece to the yellow sofa, I now quote, But what goes am amiss, I think, in those descriptions is someone like you who sees a piece, sees a work and sort of gravitates to it and sort of trying to figure out if their budget could sort of, you know, if, if it's something doable, that something would go to the artist and they could take the piece, you know, could own the piece for themselves. Um, I think that level in the day-to-day -day workings of of the gallery often go amiss. Although when asked, um, gallerists will, I think, and, 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 and sincerely also say that they're very much interested in people, uh, in the occasional buyers as well. You know, it, it, exactly occasional buyers are an important point and often not sort of uh, represented in the glossy art magazines or in the in the sort of celebrity pages of of, of magazine, other magazines, you know, but they make this whole thing turn go around. Mm -hmm. And for many artists, they're very grateful for the occasional buyer, you know. But would you say that there 
And I mean, maybe it depends on the type of artist, mm -hmm. but um, I remember you talking about in the book, you know, you've got these serious collectors and, you know, it's a lot about learning when to sell the art at the right yeah. time and, and then when to buy the art at the right mm -hmm. time. So uh, you're you're basically playing Russian roulette, but at the same time, it's almost like stock and bonds. You know, when do you yeah. sell and when do you keep? And mm -hmm. that was fascinating to me. But are there times where gallerists, even if a buyer, let's say an occasional buyer, uh, sees a painting and they want to mm -hmm. they want to buy this painting. Are there times when the gallerist will say no, even if you have the money? That's very hard to say. I mean, you know, there's, you sometimes hear anecdotes. I always say uh, in the art world, rumors are the information pipelines of the powerless, you know, as mm. in so many contexts. You will hear that. I mean, artists have, might have stipulations, for instance, who they want to sell to. Okay. Um, some artists are very specific about how, you know, they might put their work on sale, but might have stipulations as to who might or might not buy it. And very often those are ethical concerns, you know. For instance, uh, they might want it to go to a public collection, not to a private collector, or they might not want to let's say, uh, have it go to someone who invests in fossil fuels or something, if they have the luxury to choose. Now, I've never heard stories about um, a gallerist. I mean, I think what they would do is they would just ask for a kind of price that is not doable for a person. And that is, of course, based on seizing up someone and, and having a sort of feel for what they might or might not be able to quote-unquote, invest, right, into a piece. Um, art pricing itself is a very bizarre field, but, you know, it's it's very, um, you mentioned you're very much interested in the Renaissance. I mean, in the early Renaissance, art pieces were um, valorized by materials, size, and work time, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the contemporary art market is very far from that, of course, you know, mm. although sometimes size can play a matter or medium can play, can sort of play a role. But in some ways, it's also completely disjointed from those kind of considerations for good reason, but also making it more difficult, you know. I mean, over the, I've sort of been researching art for the past 20 years, almost, and I cannot tell you how often I've read about the art bubble that's about to burst and then it bursts and never have prices been this high. And I'm always reminded of Peggy Guggenheim, um, the famous American collector who also, you know, whose collection is also the foundational collection of the, Guggenheim, the Guggenheim Museum. Museum correct? Yeah. Exactly. Where she says in her biography, autobiography, um, or her sort of, authorized biography. I'm so glad I got into collecting when I did uh, because the picture market now is just out of, uh, you know, I couldn't afford buying anything anymore. And so she already made these assessments in the fifth, late 50s, early 60s, you know. So it's always been this out of bound market in a way. So um, I'd be curious, what got you into the art world to begin with? Um, I think um, perhaps a little bit like you, <laughs> I 
was always interested in art, but I didn't grow up in a sort of artsy household, to be honest. So going to I started going to museums relatively late and only with school, for instance. But um, I uh, I trained in ballet when I was very small. That was sort of the one thing, and very young. Um, but I've always it's always fascinated me, and this this feeling of not being able to access it, or the the anxieties of not being able to understand it, which can be very discouraging, I think, for individuals, actually made me want to understand it more. Uh, and as an anthropologist, I sort of felt it was a good position for me to to learn about art as a human practice, as an activity that is meaningful. Um, in a way that explained it to me and gave me access to it. And my hope was always that through this analysis, I can also share this kind of access to art, you know, um, not to be too sort of um, romanticizing, but I've always been fascinated about how young children approach art. Mm. Because what you see is very early on that for children, art, or what we would say is artistic activity, is something that is part of their life. Mm-hmm. It's not a sort of rarefied activity for the few, for the very talented or for the very gifted, or for those in return to those who can understand it. Children will both engage in the activity of making art. And when they see art, very often they will make very unfiltered um, interpretations of what it means, you know, to them, to their life. And I think that there's something really to be savored in that kind of approach and cultivated in a way not, again, to cultivate verified taste, but to claim art as part of our lives. Really, because what you, you know, you know, described in your encounter with a, a painting, I think is open to all of us. Um, this, the, when we talk about trans, let me just briefly say this, perhaps to end there. I do believe in the aesthetic as a as a fundamental part of our lives. I think that aesthetic aesthetics can change things. It can change our perception, and it can change our politics and where we stand. Absolutely. Well, um, one final question before we wrap up. Could you explain to our listeners why they should care about the impact of the art world on society? Yeah, I think that even when we say that we're not interested in art, art is interested in us. Most political projects actually have very specific aesthetic languages. Um, And so to know about art is to know about power. Nelson Rockefeller, for instance, the industrialist, the infamous architect of um, of very repressive laws in New York State, um, once said that he learned about politics in the uh, Museum for Modern Art in the MoMA. And I think so art is all around us and it shapes the way in which power works on us. But it's also up to us to reclaim it uh, and um, to insist on the emancipatory promise that um, is in the history of art. And it's for all of us and it's already around us. Every political rally, every advertising spot you see uses something out of that language. And it's worth looking, having a closer look at it. Thank you. 
Well, I have to say that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Banu again for her wonderful talk this afternoon. If you enjoyed listening to the show, make sure to like, subscribe. And if you're listening on YouTube, please ring the bell. It's support from our followers that really helps us to keep the show going. And if there's any future topics that you'd like to discuss, feel free to write us directly at coffeeandcocktailspodcast.com. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.